what happened is what we predicted would happen, is that the usage, uh, the distribution and usage of Landsat data, if you remove that constraint of selling the data, would just explode. And it did. We went from 53 scenes a day to 5,300 scenes a day. That's two orders of magnitude, right? Before 2008, if you wanted to get Landsat satellite imagery, you had to pay for it from your own pocket. The data policy for Landsat was then modified, led by the efforts of Barbara Ryan, which at the time was the associate director of the USGS. The United States Geological Survey made it that all of a sudden, Landsat imagery became open and freely available for anybody to access. This policy change went from generating four to five million dollars for the USGS to creating more than two billion, that's with a B, two billion dollars of value. This is probably the biggest policy change in the entire Earth observation industry. As we discuss in this conversation, I myself probably would have never entered this field if it were not for being able to access satellite imagery of my own account from my laptop without having to ask permission or pay anything. Before we get started, a quick mention of the sponsors. I'm investing more and more into this podcast, and it helps to be able to buy more gear and spend more time to be able to do these conversations in person. I believe... These conversations are better, more engaging, more interesting in general when we can do them in person. So a big thank you to the sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by the Radiant Earth Foundation. They support machine learning practitioners in Earth observation by providing open access geospatial tools to the community wider. This is very on topic with this conversation. One of the things they've done is help develop the Spatial Temporal Asset Catalog, or STACK for short. Having open data is great, but being able to find it is even better, and Stack is an open project that uh, allows to do that. They're currently accepting nominations for the 2022 Radiant ML Hub Impact Award. So if you're doing anything related to agriculture in Africa, you can go to the link below to try to apply for $5,000 in cash. This episode is also sponsored by Element84. They're a geospatial software company that's focused on big data problems. And one of the things they've done is put the Sentinel-2 imagery, which is from the Copernicus program, on AWS Open Data. So that means that it's even easier to access that data. Again, pretty on topic with this conversation. I've had Dan Pallone, the CEO and founder of the company, uh, on the podcast before. You can check it out at episode 16. I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. With all of that said, here's my conversation with Barbara Ryan. Thanks for, for being with me, Barbara. I'm, I'm really excited to, to have a chat together, uh, especially that we can do this in person. It's, it's very cool. It was a nice, uh, fortunate event. I like asking these conversations with the same question um, every single time. Uh, I like asking people how they would describe themselves. So I'd like it to ask it to you. How would you describe yourself? Uh, thanks, Max. And, and let me also say thank you for reaching out. Okay, I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, good question. Um, I actually would describe myself as a, a connector. Um, I, I love connecting people. I love connecting organizations. Um, I just, I like, I like to see things work. I like to see things kind of function effectively. And I think that comes largely through connections. I like to see things integrated and I think people are wonderful integrators, and we could do a better job of integrating 
um, our organizations, and so that drives a lot of my energy and passion in this topic. Right. How do we? How how do you connect people? Uh, personally and interpersonally, I think is really important, and um, and that's actually had had some challenges over these last couple of years as right. we move to a virtual environment. Right. Um, I can I can say I think many of us have been really surprised at how much work can get done virtually and actually quite efficiently, uh, and it certainly opens up um, people to informations and meetings that they wouldn't have been able to attend in person, and that's really good. Um, and yet sometimes when you have to have um, just more serious and sometimes controversial discussions, it's so much easier to do that in person. Right. There is, is something about looking Absolutely. at someone in the eye and, and being able to have that yeah, conversation. For sure. Do you think we'll ever be able to, to get that virtually or it, that there really is that importance about, like even here, you know, the fact that we took the time to set it up, to sit down. Do you think we can replicate that virtually? Whereas, you know, you just go on Zoom, you, you know, two minutes before you were answering an email. Do you, do you think we ever can get to that point of involvement that we have in person? Um, I do, actually, because okay. as, now, do I think it's going to be in 50 years or 100 years? Right. Maybe not. But I think at some point in time, as the entire universe <laughs> becomes connected, <laughs> okay, yeah, you're, gonna, you're going to find that where right. people may never meet each other. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, yeah. I do hope yeah. there is. That, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think there is something. I don't know where it's, it's going to be, uh, but, but sure. Um, why, is, why is connecting people important? Um, well, for a couple uh, reasons. One, I, 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 we are all connected in some way, whether there's an energy that kind of flows through the entire universe. I think uh, uh, people are a manifestation of that. Um, if we kind of bring it down to just the earth, the earth is an integrated system. Um, that trees are connected to the soil and those entire systems are connected and, and humans are just one part of that ecosystem and um, and I think there's just tremendous uh, capability and innovation and potential that comes when people can get together and come up with a solution collaboratively and for me it's fractal it whether it's us as two people whether it's our respective institutions whether it's governments around the world uh, many of the positions that I've been in are are trying to bring institutions together um, to just do a better job of leveraging our own respective resources so that we can get a better outcome earth observation is probably like a really good vehicle for that as well you don't see boundaries from from a satellite that's imagery. exactly right yeah that's exactly right um we uh, probably stole it from the new york times uh, but there was a an advertisement that they had that i happened to see maybe oh 10 or 12 years ago and it said something like um countries have borders stories don't. And so we rephrased that a little bit within our own industry and said, uh, countries have borders, earth observations don't. And that's to your point exactly. I've never been 
in space, but you talk to anyone who has, and the first thing they say is, we just don't see political boundaries yeah. from space, unless, of course, they were aligned with some geographic yeah, feature. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it has been a vehicle for for geopolitics and and like bridging, like creating bridges as well. Um, I like this notion of story. Sorry, sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. No. No. <laughs> no. So, I was going to say I like this notion of like stories not having boundaries, like. One of the interesting things about having done this podcast is realizing you can see the where people listen and it is from everywhere. It's still English, so there is that boundary mm -hmm. in a way where there's there's a boundary on the language that is given, but then like it is accessible everywhere. And I think there is that powerful thing about that conversation we can have can be heard anywhere. There's no I mean there's censorship, things like that, but we can have that conversation everywhere. It, yeah, no, I agree. I agree 100%. My guess is on that intervention alone, someone will come in and say, Max, can we translate your podcast oh, into some other language? <laughs> but that's a so. challenge because I've been trying to get people who speak French on, and I, I haven't figured out how to solve that problem yet. There are people who are extremely talented, they're experts in their field, but they're very bad at English. And there's like, how can I pick their brain, but share that aspect. We were talking before we, we started about like this idea of showcasing the person and how they speak and something like that. And translation can only go so far on that aspect. So I, I, I still think there's work we can do on, on bringing those stories of, of people that we still haven't cracked with, yeah. with languages. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. A couple of things. Um, uh, our daughter-in-law is French. So while our son, um, Thomas, is American, he and Lorette met oh, almost a decade ago, I guess. So she would love to talk to you. <laughs> I'm sure her parents <laughs> would love to talk to you. Uh, and then I saw in one of the um, Twitter feeds kind of leading up to this interview that even someone made a reference to Spadamage at the time, so a French company. And ironically, this week, uh, I met a couple people that who now work for Airbus, but they came from, and they work in the geospatial uh, sector within Airbus, uh, but they were all a Spadamage group as that company, um, right. you know, transitioned into Airbus. So I could help connect <laughs> you to some for sure, French yeah. speakers who work in this sector. Okay. Let's let's get on that aspect. Like one of the things I was very excited to talk to you about is, is free and open policies. Um, and a lot of that is around creating licensing and allowing people to access things that they, they probably couldn't allow um, accessing. So let's, let's go on, on the Landsat story. Um, can you like, help me understand what the situation was like before 2008? Yeah, sure. Um, and at least for Landsat, that date would date back to about 1972, even before, but the first satellite was launched in 1972. And the relationship was such that NASA, the U.S. space agency, would build and launch the satellites and operate them. Um, but then um, would often turn it over to an, uh, an operational organization, and in this case, the U.S. Geological Survey, to handle the data that would come back down from the satellites. 
um, and that's not atypical of the relationship that, say, NASA would have with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, for the weather satellites. So um, one entity may build and launch them, another, op uh, another entity may operate them. Um, now, you can imagine back in 1972, uh, and maybe to this day, NASA has uh, orders of magnitude more resources than, say, the Geological Survey. So at the time, the Geological Survey uh, argued that they didn't have the resources to uh, distribute the data or those Landsat scenes for free. So they would either need additional money from Congress to do it, or they would have to sell the data. And that's the scenario that we got into, was the geologic NASA built and launched the satellites. The USGS would, uh, at a, few, a few years later, operate the satellites, but they always had responsibility for the data distribution and always sold the data. And I can tell you that even back in 1972, uh, while I wasn't working uh, in that part of the organization yet, um, there were people um, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is where the satellite was, where the data distribution was handled at our Earth Resources and Observation and Science Center. It was called Eros. Um, they were arguing right from the get-go, we need to be giving this data away, but didn't have the resources to give it away. Okay, there were a lot of costs that were associated with bringing the data down, creating Landsat scenes, and then distributing those scenes on at that time, disks, floppy disks, probably. So I want to be very clear that there was a vision, even back in 1972, to distribute the data. Um, over that entire history from Landsat 1 up until what you just said, 2008, the data was always sold. For $500 a scene, when the U.S. government sold those Landsat scenes. Uh, in the middle of the program with Landsats 4 and 5, the government had actually transitioned it to the private sector, and the data increased by an order of magnitude. It went up to four or $5,000 a scene, and that almost killed the entire program because no one could afford to pay that kind of money for one Landsat scene. So then it transitioned back to the federal government about the time for Landsat 6, although that satellite ended up in the ocean, and then, of course, Landsat 7, Landsat 8. And, that, and I came into the picture about Landsat 7, where I had responsibility for that part of the program in the geological survey. So that's kind of the history. But it looked like you wanted to ask no, a question about that. No, I just wanted to give a, a, some context. Like, what's the... What's the size of a scene of, of, of Landsat? You've been talking about scene, like just to give some context. Yeah, so it, and, 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 and that's, a, that's another really important point because we're going well beyond scenes and getting down to yeah. very, very um, small, small scales. Um, so the resolution for um, Landsat data is on the order for black and white, 15 meter up to about 30, uh, I mean, 15 feet to about 30 feet. And the scenes covered, um, actually, um, I should check this number, but um, say, say 100 square miles, something like that. So they were large areas, even though you could look down and see farm scale, um, farm scale items, you know, maybe not individual buildings at that scale, unless they were quite large. 
yeah. So in 19, um, so it, for, for Lance at seven, I got into the program uh, in about the year um, 2000. Yeah, I served in that role from 2000 to 2008. Um, and, of course, coming into that division, you know, I heard these stories, you know, that we sold data. We looked at the statistics. We were selling about 53 scenes a day. So 53 Landsat scenes times 365 days a year. Um, we were taking in about 4 and a half or $5 million for the sale of that data, um, which is not inconsequential, you know, to any federal agency for, I mean, particularly the size of the geological survey, four and a half or $5 million is substantial. Um, but I would argue we were asking the wrong question for a very long time. After you have invested hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact, billions of dollars, from Landsat 1 up to Landsat 7, how could you justify the expense of that program by only selling 53 scenes a day? So we did an economic, well, we did a survey analysis. Who's buying those 53 scenes a day? Number one, other federal agencies. Number two, contractors who were largely working for the Defense Department. Number three, universities, and then some citizens. Okay. So other federal agencies with federal money were paying that $4.5 million to another federal agency. So what that means is you're taking money out of this pocket from the federal government perspective, you're putting it in this pocket, and you're incurring transaction costs for at every step of the way because we had to account for those sales that other federal agency had to kind of put processes and procurements in order. It wasn't efficient. So we went back to Congress, actually starting in about 2000 when I got into the job, or 2001, once we had kind of gotten the analysis, and said, this isn't uh, efficient for the federal government. Um, we should, and at that time, the technology had changed so that you no longer had to send a scene, a Landsat scene, you know, out on a floppy disk. You could, in fact, distribute it over the Internet. And so we went back to Congress, first the Department of the Interior, and then the Office of Management and Budget, who works for the White House, and then Congress, and said, you know what, um, this isn't right. And it took many years to convince them, but what happened is what we predicted would happen is that the usage, uh, the distribution and usage of Landsat data, if you remove that constraint of selling the data, would just explode, and it did. We went from 53 scenes a day to 5,300 scenes a day. That's two orders of magnitude, right? right? Um, and then, and then later, I had left the organization at the time. But we did an economic analysis. the The organization did an economic analysis in about 2011 that just showed 
it was um, it it was a, a, a public policy change within the United States that returned an economic benefit of 1.7 billion dollars to the U.S. government, 400 thousand dollars outside for a, to Europe here, you know, China, wherever, across the world, South America, for a global total of $2.1 billion. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, for a policy change. You know, for a policy change. And it far exceeded the four and a half or $5 million that we were collecting for selling that data. What's So the rationale within the federal government was... And I, and I would argue for any public sector institution around the world, whether it's a stream gauging organization, whether it's a weather service organization, whether it's a geological organization, whether it's a satellite operator, on the public side, citizens have paid for those organizations with their tax dollars they've paid for those collection devices they've paid for those distribution devices and now you're going to charge them for the data that's the cycle we want to break that data is uh, that data is the reason you built those collection devices you didn't build it just to build a satellite or just to build a stream gauging network you built it to deliver data about the earth and every taxpayer is entitled to that data there's a different business model on the private sector side and we can talk about that but number one governments owe it to their citizens for open data open science open services i i do want to come back on the the change itself like because you mentioned like we're seeing this, you know, it's 2022. In hindsight, look how many thousands of tiles are are um, fetched every day. I'm guessing back in the day before that change happened, that was still speculative to say like it would grow out, it would do this, it would do that. But the the loss in, in income, those four or five millions, that would be very real. So. How did that happen? How do you convince? Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of backlash against that, um, because on the short term, it's probably going to still cost more than it's going to bring in. How how do you go about that? Changing the policy like that? Yeah, there were a couple things in the United States. One thing that helped in the United States is there had uh, been a longstanding uh, regulation called. Well, the acronym for it was COFER, Cost of Fulfilling User Request. So while the U.S. in general, not with Landsat data, but in general they had a fairly open policy to get data out the door. But you could always charge a user the incremental cost to get the data out the door. So if it you had to put it on a floppy disk, you could charge the user for that floppy disk. So we're talking okay. like Inc- $30 yeah. or yes, something. Exactly, right. yeah. Uh, now, in the case of Landsat data, it was a different policy. So you call, you charge them $500 a scene plus the $30 to put it on a floppy disk. Okay, but for a lot of data. As soon as we transition technolo- technologically from floppy disk to the internet, 
then you've put those processes in place to deliver data over the web, there really is no incremental yeah, cost. You do cost. it once for the first yeah. scene and then for any number of scenes afterwards. And so it made no sense. So we also argued we are not complying with a regulation that you've put in place for the cost to fulfill user requests because we have no costs. Mm -hmm. So then we were able to also go back and argue that we're not even honoring a regulation that the government has in place. So that helped, um, that also helped facilitate the discussion. But maybe more broadly um, to your question is of, there were detractors. There were detractors inside the organization because that meant $4.5 million were, was no longer coming to the geological survey. There were some detractors on the outside who could um, benefit from either buying scenes and then reselling them. And so there, there, there was uh, an impact uh, to some of those companies. Um, and then there was a threat more broadly from the private sector uh, that as they were building satellites, launching them with increased functionality, uh, spatial resolution, that if all of a sudden the geological survey starts giving away this data, it was going to threaten their business. Now, actually, while that might have happened with um, it initially and with a couple companies, it proved not to be the case in the long run because as soon as you could distribute that kind of coarse resolution data, um, you know, 15 to 30 meter data or whatever, then for, at no cost, then that just uh, fed an appetite yeah. for people to go in and look at higher resolution data. So that actually helped um, these other private sector companies because they no longer were paying the government for data. So all that money that was coming to the geological survey could now be spent with higher resolution data. So that actually was a, a plus for those companies that were building higher resolution satellites. The other thing that happened is that national and global analyses were facilitated because you could, and there's some, a wonderful example of some work that uh, Matt Hansen out of the University of uh, Maryland was doing on forest cover. Okay, you used to be able to buy a couple scenes and kind of stitch them together and look at forests. But if you wanted to look at continental forests, it would cost you three or four or five hundred thousand dollars to compile all those Landsat scenes. Nobody was doing that analysis. And that would be and, one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so now all of a sudden when you're get a, getting a constant feed of those Landsat data, and this is exactly what Bant did uh, globally, but certainly the best example, I mean a more localized example, is for the entire Iberian Peninsula over 10 years. Just show me every forest over the entire continent, or over the entire peninsula that's always been forests, that used to be forests and now has come back, that, you know, or not, used to be forests and now is uh, deforested, or used to be deforested and now they're forested. So we can do trend analyses globally that never could have been done before. 
And those universities also, um, the four or $500 that they used to have to pay, that four or $500 can now go into analysis, uh, scientific analysis, rather than having to buy the data to then do the scientific analysis. So those, that $2.1 billion of economic return uh, was jobs being created in the private sector, to uh, do value-added products and services. It was increased scientific analysis at the universities and their research dollars going farther. And it was new businesses that were being created that we couldn't have even conceived of before. Yeah, yeah. So You're opening yeah, the a, floodgates absolutely. to a whole other market Ab- that absolutely. just didn't make sense yeah, back then. Yeah, totally. Sure. I wanted to ask, what happened to the USGS when you cut that four or five million? Because all of those repercussions, they happen outside of the USGS. So in in the organization itself, there still is that loss. What happened inside? Yeah, well, that's ironic. There certainly would would have been, um, there there would have been some uh, loss of positions. But ironically, because that money was being used for something, um, ironically, we had already made the transition to not send it out on floppy disks. Right, right, so right. those jobs had been lost decades before when that technological transition had occurred. And of course, if you know anything about, I mean, the Geological Survey, but I would argue any federal uh, government organization and even private sector organizations. N- nobody wants to fire people. Yeah, you know, I can imagine for undue reason. Now, if somebody's not doing their job, okay, you've got an obligation, you know, to the whole institution to say, help improve that person, or say, you know, you're just not cutting the job. So, what you first try to do is retool or retrain or transition those people into other areas rather than actually going through any kind of reduction in force yeah i can imagine so and that happens quite slowly you know i can imagine yeah yeah. so it's like the the cost of changing that policy is is having to go through that where some there there is going to be some people who kind of pay the the cost of that personally even though it seems like as a whole like i would not be in this industry if it were not for open data like being able to try it on, on a laptop without asking anybody. But someone has to pay that cost for that transition yeah. to happen at, yeah. at some point. Yeah. You know, when I when I think about that, particularly with the international partnerships we had, there's one um, there's, there's one other uh, technological change that I think is really important. With the early Landsat satellites, um, they didn't have onboard, the storage for onboard recorders for the data wasn't, Um, particularly robust. So the geological survey, again, going back to 1972 when the first Landsat satellite was launched, had to establish an international ground station network around the world. So uh, in Australia, in South America, and I know we'll come back to Brazil uh, and Argentina uh, later, but around the world there were Landsat ground stations that we operated in partnership with other governments um, where those ground stations occurred. And what that did is, as a satellite passed over, they would downlink, send the data down. 
And then as the satellites evolved and the onboard storage became greater, you didn't necessarily need as robust a network of those ground stations. But over decades, what that actually did was build up an international support researchers in those countries, government agencies in those countries. And I think that actually built just a, a, a remarkable community for Landsat globally. And so to some extent, these global benefits, uh, the, the, uh, the money that accrued globally outside the United States is often in large part due to those early partnerships that were formed by that. And then just maybe one more thing. Um, this was a big policy change. And at the time it was done in 2007 and 2008, and then I left the organization to go to Geneva, Switzerland in 2008, Europe was going through that same debate for its um, um, Sentinel series of satellites and the Copernicus program. And it really wasn't clear uh, if they were going to go to a broad open data policy. And then I think the experience in the United States that showed the success economically of going, while there are costs to do it, the economic benefits are substantial. And then the fact that Europe fouled uh, suit, you know, with a, a broad open data policy for the entire uh, Copernicus program and the Sentinel series of satellites just added additional a global benefit to put really a forcing function on many other governments around the world who do not have broad, and still to this day, do not have broad open data policies for their own satellite data. So, it was so the, there's a lot of work that still yeah. needs to be done globally. Okay. But I, like that was the first domino that, that started think, yeah. when someone else saw, okay, yeah. this starts working, you right. needed to get that first yeah. Yeah. foot in the door. Yeah. yeah. And then particularly because those economic, because once, okay, at least the dynamic in the United States, and actually I think this is everywhere. We had good talks this week here at Geospatial World with the head of the uh, Belgian uh, mapping agency um, about open data, uh, was when you go to your regulators or your legislators, they expect to hear from the federal government that we're good and we should be financed more so that yeah. we can release our data. But it's more meaningful if universities or if the private sector comes in and says, we will benefit if you give this federal agency a little bit more money to release their data broadly and openly. So that's the dynamic. Those, those legislators need to hear from customers you know, that jobs are going to be created, that the economy is going to grow because um, every legislator or uh, president or Congress yeah, wants to have economic growth. And that economic growth occurs largely through uh, private sector contributions to the economy, jobs that are created, not necessarily jobs on the public sector side, but jobs on the private sector side so that more people are paying taxes that's, to the government. Exactly, that's tax buyer yes. money that yeah, comes exactly. in directly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that you create, if I understand correctly, you're creating, you're asking someone else to show, look, we have an incentive for that organization that you're funding to grow because then you grow everything else. And it's not just the organization saying like, hey, please give us yeah. money. Yeah, 
Exactly right. And it's not really, I'm not even advocating that those federal agencies have to grow. They just have to have the resources to release that data broadly and openly available. And it doesn't often mean that they have to grow, just means they may need a few more resources to use their existing staff to get the data out the door. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, were there negative consequences? Like we've talked about the few jobs that get lost, lost. because they're, they're, they're yeah. not there. But did you see anything else? Like we talked about um, other private companies that were selling data at the time or like people who were reselling. Uh, were there like some unforeseen consequences that ended up like hindering? Maybe even if, you know, as a whole, it turns out that it's probably beneficial for the industry. Were there other things that came out that maybe not didn't yeah. see coming? Yeah, a couple of things. I'm on... I'm not sure for those couple companies. I do, one, I don't know if anybody actually went out of business because right. there was enough it. dialogue that they kind of saw this coming. And, mm. and, of course, some people had been arguing for it since 1972, so right. nothing helps, nothing yeah. moves quick that quickly, right? So you can retool. So I wouldn't argue that those were unforeseen. They knew that was going to be a business threat, and that's actually why they were maybe early on uh, against the policy change. Right. Um, I think maybe some of the unforeseen consequences were by just opening up this data and making things much more transparent than uh, there are uh, institutions and or people that would come in and say, hey, I didn't actually know this landscape change was taking place or that landscape change. And so I'm not sure that we had while we knew there would be an uptake of data, I don't think, um, I'm not sure we knew how much it would actually stimulate. Like we might have estimated that five point, uh, that four and a half or five million dollars that we were getting might go to $10 million of benefit or maybe 50 million. There's no way we would have predicted that it would have been 1.7 you know, billion dollars of economic return. We were, we had no vision that that would, that that would happen. Which is a great problem um, to have. And it was a good problem to have. Um, I would argue, and we'll, we, you can talk to uh, Google Earth people, we may not even have uh, a Google Earth or Google Maps if they hadn't been able to get access to all that data. So the Landsat data was one of the first big data sets that went into uh, really looking at the Earth globally. And then there are, and so that let's just go back to maybe some unforeseen consequences is that all of a sudden one country's activities are becoming more visible to another country's activities. And while that might have always been visible in select communities, let's say on the defense or intelligence side, all of a sudden all of this is now out in the open. And so there's a global transparency that occurs. And of course, they're all little bumps when that happens. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, especially with like to, to bring it back to what's going on right now in with the war in Ukraine. There's like the whole field of open source intelligence is being really prominent. Like, of course, my Twitter timeline is just images of Maxar of, of like what's happening. But I'm guessing some of the earlier steps of that is having Landsat where it you can have things like that. It becomes a data source where even journalists can start telling stories that 
didn't make sense absolutely. for them to tell yeah. before. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I'm glad you man- mentioned Maxar because they are a key partner in the organization now, which I lead, which is the World Geospatial Industry Council. While we're a not-for-profit organization, you have to be a private sector company to join. So it's a trade association working on behalf of the private sector. Um, but but let's but I'll bring a Maxar story back if we have a little time. Yeah, of course, okay. please. Um, I love stories because it's uh, it ties in really nicely with Landsat. The Defense Department always used Landsat data for context, broad context. So they could afford to buy <laughs> the four or five hundred dollars a scene for the whole world, or at least the areas of interest that they were interested in. Okay, and then they so that would be context, and then they would go to Ma- it wasn't Maxar at the time, uh, it was Digital Globe or GOI, uh, and they would go and say, give me some focus your satellites, task your satellites for this part of the earth because they were able to use Landsat for context. So it could, in fact, refine their procurements to the private sector over selected areas. It's this concept of tip and queue, is that right? Where it's like if you look out a window and you're like, oh, there's something happening in, and then that's where you take exactly, your binoculars. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly the, the the same dynamic. But now let's come back to the data policy yeah, sure. aspect. Okay, so uh, this would have been, and again, probably 2000. Uh, in fact, it would have been. It was uh, after um, the events of September 11th, so 2001. Um, the U.S., the United States policy at the time was uh, we want to establish a commercial uh, satellite capability, not just on the government side with the defense and intel satellites, not just on the public sector side with NASA and USGS and NOAA, but we want the private sector to come in and start building high-resolution satellites. So that's, I think, a wonderful policy for any government to have because we do see more innovation and speed to market and there's just a lot of benefits out of economic growth um, I mean on the private sector side as compared to maybe the steady long-term continuity that's got to be provided on the government side very different roles and responsibilities Um, but back in 2001 with this policy to stand up a commercial capability for earth observations um, the United States, um, the Defense Department put about, I think, four or five hundred million dollars into Digital Globe, four or five hundred million dollars into GOI because there were two emerging capabilities. So that's a billion dollars. And when we, on the civilian side, the Geological Survey, wanted to get access to that data, we were going to have to pay right. for the data. <laughs> So we are now, we, 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 we weren't asking for access to the, those highly secure areas. We were, of course, looking at it for environmental change and selected areas where you could look at how the earth is changing. We made the same argument. We, the taxpayers, yeah. just spent a billion dollars. How come we've got to go and turn around and buy the data? That policy has since been changed. So now at least the civilian agencies can get access to that data through the Defense Department. So we argued, wonderful policy for, to build up a commercial capability. Don't use data as the currency with which you are going to measure 
um, this these transactions. Okay. Now, in hindsight, um, two companies didn't exist. You know, it wouldn't support even with that billion dollars of investment from the public sector, the defense and Intel. It couldn't support two companies. Got down to one company, Digital Globe, and then Digital Globe ultimately became Maxar. And uh, and you just like you said with the Ukrainian and Russian situation right now, uh, that's all you see on the web is Maxar's data on the television with Maxar's data, and it's phenomenal. It's just phenomenal resolution, uh, tank movement. Uh, you we're, know, we're telling uh, stories build up. of oh, what, yeah. what is yeah. happening no. because of so that. there's a there's a global transparency, and this actually let's go full circle back to maybe some of those unintended consequences because now there are governments you know saying wow I didn't think you could see that yeah about my yeah, country, yeah right for sure yeah. I'm sure it changes some of the like geopolitical scenes because it is a very like just intelligence is an enormous power like having that intelligence is is, is crazy. I, I wanted to come back to, We you, you put the data out. Um, did you see a need for training or having, like, making tools to help access and use that data as well? well one thing I'm curious about is satellite imagery is, is complex data as well. So it's one thing to say, okay, any citizen can can access that it's another for people to know how to leverage that and so is that part of making it more accessible were there some initiatives to build tools or provide training of beyond the data yeah for sure um yeah and i have a couple um different points that i'd like to talk about in that um so the United States Geological Survey was uh, not just a data, you know, satellite uh, and data. Or, I mean, it was a science organization. It was the uh, National Mapping Organization for the United States. It was the National Water uh, Organization. It, the hence geology. Our our roots were in geology, to, so you were looking nationally. And uh, again, in uh, 1994, we acquired a fourth division for biology. So it really was um, about um, just the entire United States' natural system. This was the agency. So a lot of science was done, and then, therefore, a lot of tools were developed. So for sure, tools in each of those divisions were developed and built. But also, by opening up this, but, but that wasn't, for our own science, though, that was important. Um, but a lot of that economic growth that I talked about were other institutions coming in and building tools for their own audiences. And so we didn't want to replace that innovation that could occur in universities or in the private sector as well. And so we didn't have to be the tool. Not that not that we didn't do it, but I'm not I don't think we ever saw it as our primary role to do it. Now, we would do training courses globally, you know, again, to come in and talk about the intricacies of Landsat data and what you're looking at with these bands and all the false color and all that and changes. We did do that, uh, but we certainly wanted to stimulate that work elsewhere as well. I, I, I see, I see. So it's more about being the, that bedrock on which yeah. everything else yes. can spawn, and yes. then it's like our job here is done. We're enabling other people to do that, but leaving that to other yeah. people to do. Yeah. So that not only ties back to the our 
first conversation about connecting because more things will get done if uh, other people are working on that issue. And they often have uh, more strength, more capability, you know, uh, more innovation, uh, quicker to market. And in fact, that go, let's go back to just the, uh, the cadastral or the mapping discussions that have been held this week. Um, many of these national mapping agencies want to provide authoritative layers, key data layers for certain activities, but you also want to stimulate other institutions to come in, update that more quickly, get that out to market faster. Um, one little example uh, goes back to my early days at the Geological Survey when I worked, I spent 20 years in the water division, and we had uh, 4,000 stream gauging stations around the world where, you know, you're taking measurements, you know, every month on what the stream flow is. And then when you put recorders in, you could get, you know, measurements every 15 minutes. Well, the first stream cage station in the United States went in in Buto, New Mexico in, uh, I think, I don't know, 1890-something. So for 100 years, we were giving this data on paper copies, you know, to state water managers or to other federal agencies who needed that data. As soon as that data was able to go from paper to the Internet so that uh, other people could get access to it, we saw industries that would come in, uh, anglers or rafters or canoe companies that were then using that data to guide their businesses to say, okay, we're not going to go on this right. reach of this river today because the flow is only here. We're going to go farther downstream. Or I can't cross this, you know, for me to get to work, um, if I go from me to you, you know, it's maybe 10 miles. If that creek is flooded because it's a dry creek bed and I've got to go over it, then i got to drive 100 miles to work. So people were making day-to-day -day decisions by just getting access to that data over the web. And you know what? All government agencies really need to make that migration because you just don't know what potential is out there for your data. That For me, that ties back to your tools issue is, sure, we can do tools on how to look at this Landsat scene better, but we can't even conceive right, yeah. of the potential for this data. And that's whether it's Landsat data or Streamflow data or soil moisture data. I mean, it's unlimited. And in true, I mean, on what people will think about the earth and where they live on the earth and just our connection as humans to the earth. Okay. So, so in a way, the like opening up is like giving in to the people and saying like trusting people to come up with ideas that it's it's like humble in a way. It's like a lot of people are going to come up with ideas that even us just cannot think about today. Yeah. And so as long as you are providing some good quality baseline data out there so they're your so these other users are assured uh, that it's been QAQC, you know, it's it's good sound data, uh, authoritative data people might actually say um, then yeah, then yeah, you're uh, you're just unleashing yeah. the power of Earth observations. And when I say Earth observations, it's any observation yeah. in 
on or around the earth. Yeah, yeah, we're, okay. we're talking, we've talked a lot about Landsat, but those those gauges you were talking about, in a way, are, oh, are some absolutely. Earth observation yep. data. Yep. And you can tie them in together as well. Like, I'm, I'm guessing the, the complexity of information you can derive. Once you combine those multiple set, data sets together, you can start creating a better picture of what is going on. Absolutely. One question I, I did have is, did you see, like, the policy changes, but one thing I'm slowly realizing is that you can build something that doesn't mean people are going to come and um, take advantage of it. Like, you need people to know about it as well. Um, were there, did you see a need like that about telling people, like, hey, this policy has changed. Hey, there's this free data. out, Like, doing some outreach or marketing, for example, as well, to tell people, to tell universities, but also private companies and, and people who are entrepreneurs that now there's a business model that actually works beyond just doing the fact that outreach aspect. Yeah, a um, couple things. Obviously, USGS has, you know, a marketing uh, communications department, and so press releases were issued. Um, but, but, but there was a lot of support for Landsat in general. And so for those organizations that knew it, this was a big deal. So a lot of times, so they, they made as big a deal right. about it as we did. So it was, again, it was other people speaking on our behalf. Um, I, there are two issues that we got to cover somewhere. And I will come back to this political issue um, about communi communicating it because there's an interesting story there. And then I also want to make sure I come back to the role that other governments, in, yeah. in the case of Brazil, played. So we'll we'll handle it yeah. in any way you want. Sure. Let's do it chronologically. Yeah, please. Um, so about uh, 2000, when I got into the job, we had we did have a really close relationship with INPI, the Brazilian Space Agency Research and Space Agency, and also Canai in Argentina, So south, because they had ground station, Landsat ground stations there. So um, we were still selling data, four or $500 a scene, but we were distributing it. Uh, we were, um, we were, at that time, we might have still even been sending it out on floppy disks, but we obviously had internet capability. So I went back to the organization and said, you know, well, how come we're not just getting it out over the Internet? Well, there were a hundred reasons why we couldn't do that. So in, it might have been 2002 or 2003, we go to Brazil, and uh, Gilberto Camara was the uh, chief at the time of INPI. He ultimately, our Careers have been quite similar because after I retired from the Geological Survey and went to Geneva, Switzerland, ultimately became the director of the Group on Earth Observations, uh, Gilberto followed me into that job uh, six years later. So our careers have kind of gone like that a lot. But we take a team of USGS people down to Brazil. He's distributing Landsat data over the web. Right. Yeah. So... Of course, you know, you had to pull me off the ceiling because I'm saying, I've been asking our institution to do that for three years, and there's a hundred reasons why we can't do it. So I have to go to Brazil to see 
you know, Brazil doing what I've been asking for for three years. So that was a really good forcing function to get out of the United States, go down and see the leadership that Brazil was, in fact, technologically exerting. It was Landsat data, and they were distributing at low cost. So, uh, and that was really good. Our government, you know, our partners could do that. But technologically, they were farther ahead than us. And of course, that also, we were able to come back, put some serious pressure yeah. on the organization and say, come on, you guys, you've clearly got the technical capability to get this data out on the web. And then that helped build the policy um, to us to go back and say there is no incremental cost. For, once you've got that whole system in place, mm -hmm. and fine, you maybe use the five, four and a half or $5 million of data sales to get that system in place, then there's no additional cost for the next scene. All your cost is to get the first scene out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah it's the, like you build the infrastructure yeah, once, exactly. but then the, there's no like hardware you need to send. Yeah. The, the marginal yeah. cost is really yeah. low. Yeah. And I, again, I think it's it's back to what we were talking about with Sentinel. I'm guessing having someone to point to and say, look, this does work, makes that case so much stronger. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a fair amount of competition. I mean, co right. governments um, uh, between and among themselves, you kind of raise the bar. And if that government can do it, you say, hey, okay, we can do it. You know, so, okay, right. so that yeah, whole yeah, thing yeah. is, go that whole human nature dynamic yeah, is yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. The political issue, back to your question about the communication right. of Landsat, this may be a story that uh, many people don't know. Uh, so it would have, uh, and I may not have my dates right. But there was, the United States was um, a uh, big supporter, in fact, one of the early designers of the Group on Earth Observations. In G the Secretariat is in Geneva, Switzerland. It's an intergovernmental mechanism. It's uh, but not a UN mechanism. So there's no mand. It's a voluntary organization that governments around the world can join. We had four, uh, there have been four co-chairs, the European Commission, the United States from a developed country perspective, uh, China, and South Africa from a developing country perspective. And so those co-chairs have been there, I think, since the inception of GEO, and it was stood up in about 2005. I moved in in um, uh, 2008. Yeah, that's not quite right. They must have stood up a little bit before. Oh, no, I spent four years at WMO. I moved in in 2012, sorry. So it stood up in 2005. I moved in in 2012 and then left in 2018. But those four co-chairs have been throughout the entire history. Every year, they have a big uh, plenary meeting somewhere around the world. Okay, so I was USGS back in 2006 or two. 2007, certainly 2008, the GEO plenary was going to be in um, South Africa. So I think it was down in Cape Town. So I was USGS national mapping, you know, or the head of the Landsat program. We wanted to get the Secretary of Interior. So within the United States, the Geological Survey is a bureau or an agency, but it reports up to a cabinet-level official who then reports to the president. So because this plenary was going to just bring in ministers from around the world, and because the U.S. and 
China and the European Commission and South Africa were co-chairs, we wanted to get the Secretary of Interior down to Cape Town for this big meeting. So we said, we're about to announce the change in the Landsat policy. You should use this geoplenary in Cape Town to announce it. So we brief it all the way up the line, and we are this close to getting the Secretary of Interior to actually fly to Cape Town to make this big announcement. And, of course, he knew Landsat because he had kind of been briefed on it. But, you know, um, this is another issue about us as scientists really communicating the relevance of what we do. Um, I don't – He. it was clear that they were going to have to take a chance on us that this was going to be a big announcement. Right. So no matter what we said – this is going to be a big announcement. It wasn't quite clear that the political people were going to kind of get, like, understand it. So the Friday night before the Secretary of Interior is going to fly down to South Africa, um, the director of the Geological Survey, who was my boss, his name is Mark Myers. He's now in, was out of Alaska. Uh, at 4.30 in the afternoon, we get a phone call from the chief of staff of the Secretary of Interior. And so, uh, and it goes right into the director, Mark Myers. And so Mark calls me and says, Barb, get up here. We're talking to the chief of staff. So Mark and I are at a table like this. The chief of staff is on the phone and uh, is, you know, it was just one of those spider phones or web phones at the time. There was not any video capabilities, I believe. And the chief of staff says, if I send the Secretary of Interior, to Cape Town, and we get a call on a budget issue from the President of the United States, and that secretary is down in Cape Town, and I can't get a hold of him, I'm going to remember one name, Mark Myers. And so he, so basically, so, and, and this is where I give Mark tremendous amount of leadership, and this talks about the role that people play, because essentially, Mark had to make a judgment call to the chief of staff at the Department of Interior and say, it's still the right thing to do, or no, maybe you're right, we won't have him go. Mark would go instead. And uh, Mark kind of looked at me, and I kind of signaled, and, you know, just a little nod, stay the course. He stayed the course. So he said to the chief of staff, send him down, you won't be disappointed. So then, of course, we're sweating, <laughs> right? Because, I can imagine, yeah, yeah. Right. So anyway, fast forward to the next meeting. Dirk Kempthorne at the time uh, goes into the uh, Group on Earth Observations, announces the data policy change, gets a standing ovation from all the countries around the world, and, of course, came back, and it was a wonderful story. Uh, but <laughs> we were kind of sweating bullets, you know, in the lead-up to that. And so uh, it just goes to show you how many people have roles to play. Scientists have a role to play. Uh, the political appointees are the survey director, you know, because it absolutely would have been his uh, his job if that if the president had called and Dirk Kempthorne was down in South Africa and couldn't get a hold of him. Mark would have lost it. Mark would have lost his job. I guarantee it. Um, and so then after the standing ovation, I go back to Mark and said, 
did you call the chief of staff and tell him there's one name he ought to remember? Mark Myers <laughs> for making that decision to give uh, the Secretary of Interior all that visibility. And of course, Mark didn't do that. He, he wasn't <laughs> that kind of person. But. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I think that's like shows the it, it is people behind yeah. it. Like yeah. it, it's not yeah. just look, the data shows this is the thing that we should do, that there's like stakes in people's yeah. careers on the Absolutely. line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's why, as, thanks for sharing that. Like, it's real. I think we, like, for me, I've been in the industry for, like, a few years now. It is things I take for granted that, like, oh, yeah, Copernicus, it's this cool thing. It's just free data and Landsat as well. But there was, there's a long history to, to get to that point. Um, you said there's more things to, to let me, be done. Uh, yeah, let please. me just say, let me say one, one other thing about that. Um, and for a number of situations that are happening in my home country, the United States, um, you can't, you also cannot take these things for granted. So not only was there a long history to get there, there's no assurances that it's going to be that way out into the future. So you have to be, one has to be uh, diligent and vigilant about continuing to communicate. And that's actually, Max, that's why I very much appreciate this dialogue, um, because sometimes we just have to remind people that uh, policies, democracies yeah. are fragile. Yeah, yeah. this could be taken away we could we could close the floodgates, yeah. especially where data is the the images that we took a year ago. They're still useful for archiving, but it's the image that's going to come tomorrow that's important. Like it is a stream of data that needs to continuously happen. Not only that, but when those life those satellites have a shelf life, um, well, space shelf life, but there is that notion that they're going to run out of fuel, even if they don't break, they're just going to run out of fuel. And we need to advocate for the next ones yeah, to, for sure. to be built. Yeah, for sure. Um, there are two issues, one on your historical question. Um, and, and that is where the at that, that time during the debate, um, there were good discussions between the public sector and the private sector at the time, because the private sector was mostly selling current, you know, data that was yeah. taken today or yesterday. Okay, right. And so their shelf life on the old data, if you looked at their sales, they didn't sell much old data. It was always what's happening today. And so we even wanted to negotiate with them to get easier access to that old data, because what, from a, from an environmental perspective, how the earth changes is really important. So you can't make good predictions about the future unless you look at the past. And so, you know, in geology, there's, you know, this saying about the past is the, you know, the key to the future. So um, you need a lot of data. So there's a, there is a lot of value in that historical archived data so that you can look at how forest or water or anything, urban development, anything has changed over time, okay? Was there, like, if, if those sales didn't go very well, like, we still kept that data. It was still Absolutely. on the shelf yeah. somewhere. Yeah, no. It, yeah. So for government 
agencies for almost any any data that you collect on almost anything, uh, there is an archival responsibility. So okay, you, right. you don't destroy data. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. And and therein lies maybe just a segue into the next discussion as we go forward, because um, all whether you're public sector space agency or private sector space agency, you do there are uh, international uh, guidelines for deorbiting satellites, you know, and space debris is a big issue as we go forward. But um, the art, we, we put together a report for the Glasgow Climate Conference on um, greenhouse gases from space because the private sector is coming in with a lot of increased functionality and capability for that. Um, but private sector agencies kind of come and go. You know, yeah, so right. the strength of the public sector is that you one have a responsibility to the past as well as to the future, and so there's generally an assurance that the NASA's of the world, the JAXs, the ESAs, not only are here today, but they're going to be here tomorrow. Okay, so you you need these long-term observations of the Earth at a global scale that are often in the domain of the public sector. What we are seeing with the emergence of the new space actors, and even the old space actors on the private sector side, is they are bringing immense capability and functionality to the table. Increased spatial resolution, like in the case of Maxar, you know, we're looking at very centimeter scale things on the Earth versus 15 or 30 meters. uh, pixels. Um, they're bringing increased temporal frequency. You know, with Landsat or Sentinel, you know, there's, uh, you know, eight days or six days to get around the Earth before that one satellite comes back and images that same place. Uh, and yet you can go like this uh, with a, a targeted satellite, for example, with Maxar. Um, and then also um, spectral resolution. So lots of functionality on the private sector side. What we argued to the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow is you need both. You governments have got to continue to invest in those workhorses of Earth observations on the public sector side, and you've got to put policies and practices in place that will encourage this innovation on the private sector side. You governments may fund some of that. They may also get money from venture capitalists and other sources, um, but and money is going to be required to keep them in operation. Uh, but if you want to solve an issue as big as climate change or delivering on those sustainable development goals or um, poverty uh, or uh, food security or insecurity, you're going to need, you should be using all the tools in the toolbox and that's public sector resources and private sector resources as well. Yeah, I want I want to I want to explore that. I'm very curious to know your thoughts on the rise of you talked about new space so let's use that term about a lot of private companies. Um so Maxar is one. I think it's a whole other field when we talk about Planet for example, um which is like much younger. It's it's I think 10 years old at this point. And there are more and more companies like that that are starting to to rise like isi like satellitic black sky like all these like vc funded um companies how do you see the relationship between those where it is like a shorter um 
investment time frame as well like venture capital expects a return on like 10 years something like that but not 20 30 50 uh whereas the government agencies you said they're here on the long term nasa in 20 years is still probably going to be there in 50 years is still also going right. to be there right yeah um so i guess a couple things yeah surely um these companies will come and some of them will go. They just won't be able to kind of get it together and will fall um, fall off the radar screen. Um, for me, that kind of comes back to the importance of the organization that I'm in right now um, because if you look at our uh, members, um, Planet and Maxar are, are, are big companies and they're at our patron level uh, and yet at the smaller, more startup level or, or um, and not even startups, some of the companies like GHGSAT, for example, a British and Canadian company that is actually the only company delivering data on methane from space right now. Government, Some government at a core scale are doing it, but they're doing it at a very site-specific level. There's another company that's in orbit, but um, they aren't delivering data yet. They're still in a QAQC phase. Um, and then the other uh, smaller companies, um, you mentioned uh, Satellogic, you, uh, Satellite View will have uh, some thermal capability on orbit. Um, you'll, um, uh, I guess, uh, and then Scepter uh, is a California company that will also be doing methane in 2004 or 2005. So we're seeing these new entrants. The value of the, and all of those companies I've just mentioned are members of WGIC. So when you think about one of our objectives about not only creating business opportunities for companies within this trade association, but making sure these companies are in fact contributing to the global economy and society at large, we're seeing partnerships emerge within WGIC where um, some of these larger companies may actually be buying some of the smaller companies, right, you know, right. or there there will be business opportunities. And it doesn't actually even have to be a, a bigger space company buying a smaller space company. It may be a services organization that wants some data collection capabilities. So um, there's almost a, I don't know, mentoring uh, that could take place, uh, some dialogue, discussion that can take place within a trade association where a couple companies they met may enter into non-disclosure agreements. They don't want anybody else to know they're talking, but they're talking. Do you think you, we talked in length about how an open data policy like 100x the number of tiles that were used? Do you think that could be applicable to commercial providers where... Um, as I was preparing, I, I asked on Twitter if people had questions, and someone said, like, there's in in the video game industry, there's um, historically, like, people have sold a game, they make money when they sell it like that, and it's changing to you give the game for free, but then everything that comes on top of it is where you make money, and that is just the amount of money that companies make like that is enormous compared to selling it once like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think there could be a model like that for commercial? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there are a couple things on that. Right now, um, well, let's set the context. Um, for me, on the public sector side, the argument was the citizens have already paid for 
that those collection devices, yeah, right. they should get the data. On the private sector side, um, their clientele, while it might be government and it might be individual citizens, it's to their shareholders, so they need to make a profit. So let's get clear between what the public sector's responsibilities are and what the private sector responsibilities are. And if anything, I think over the last maybe 20 years, there's been kind of a blurring because there's been pressure on governments to look more customer focused, more efficient, more innovative, to look more like the uh, private sector. And I think there's also been pressure and still is on the private sector to look more government-like. You've got an environmental social responsibility. So, right. So to some extent, we're kind of blurring. That's not to say everybody shouldn't be responsible, but let's just think roles and responsibilities. The lines are getting blurred. Now, that's the baseline. Yeah. For me, going forward to your point, I think not maybe, first of all, we have members who are giving a fair amount of data away. Okay, so it may be to researchers, it may be for conservation purposes, uh, with a partnership between Norway and um, Planet, it may be for a tropical rainforest. In the case of GHGSAT, it's to QAQC with researchers and help them improve their product and do more research on, you know, methane emissions. So you could point to almost every company in our list and they're doing some kind of data exchange. So that is occurring, maybe not to the extent that some people are advocating, but I think may not be in five years, might be in 10 years, but I think you will see a migration away from data being the means of exchange, the currency that we use to exchange, to services. So you're starting to sell services. And for me, that's the gaming analogy that you just presented. Okay, they're apps, but it's a service. You know, it's some service that's being put on top of this game, and then the customer is buying that service. I think we're gonna, you're going to see that transition. So oh, the, this is really interesting because... What we're seeing a lot in the so that's the the field I'm at in okay. is that like commercial applications of um, Earth observation imagery. Like I am really interested in like of all these companies and some of which are going public with crazy valuation. Is this all of a house of cards or is there like can we build those applications that sustain the whole industry and at least personally, I don't know if it's very clear what the answer is right now. And what we there are different companies that are taking different approaches where, like Planet, I think, um, Will Marshall, the CEO, said multiple times he sees it as a data company where they are partnering with different um, companies or like the government of Norway where they're giving away data like that. But they're, they don't, like it, it, it would require a lot of resources to go down every single one of those applications because if you're doing vegetation monitoring you need to know you need to talk with people in the vegetation industry who know that industry a lot but then if you work um in in flooding for example and in, in insurance that's a whole other set of people that have nothing in common the only thing in common is the imagery so do you think that would make sense from that point of view from those companies 
to diversify that much? Yeah. So a couple things. Um, I don't think you can be everything to everybody. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I do think it's really important to get clear about what your role in the ecosystem is and kind of s- uh, stay with that. Okay. Um, um, and, and so, yeah, what I would say, um, Will's absolutely right. It doesn't mean that planet's got to develop those, but if you've got the partnerships and the right, connections right, right, right. with maybe even other partners here within the WGIC family that would build that, those are the kind of synergies that that can be, in fact, created. Okay, so it doesn't always mean you've got to sell every piece of data to even get to that because you may get kickbacks from those applications right. that were done on that. So that could be your business. So you've got a revenue stream coming back got in it. to support the data from those applications. So it really okay. is changing that business model from we sell you the data and then it's yours, you do whatever you want, to let's work together and here's all the data in the world you want but we get a part yeah, of yeah, what, okay, yeah. right. And believe me, I'm not advocating, because these are uh, shareholder and CEO discussions, yeah, 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 yeah. and so I'm not ab- actually advocating that you should be doing this. No. I'm advocating <laughs> partnerships, don't get me wrong on that, because uh, the, the, you know, yeah. the sum of the parts, or whatever, you. the whole is greater than just the sum of the parts, for sure. Um, That's really interesting. Uh, in the case of, um, uh, let's go back to... Um, is it sustainable? Your question about where do you see this whole ecosystem going? And clearly, like I said, some companies are going to be here um, and some companies are not. But the more we can tie in the role that Earth, let's just say uh, satellite-based observations uh, can play to global uh, mandates for climate Govern, governance structures, whether it's the, the Paris Agreement and the Conference of the Parties every year or the Arctic for um, the Arctic Observing Summit that's a consortium that's com- comprised every, every other year where governments, the private sector, indigenous communities, civil society come together. The more we can get our data and information infused into those mechanisms will help. Let's just take methane. We got good global measurements from the public sector. Uh, countries are going to have to report back their emissions data. You know, So you can take some measurements with government assets at a very high level. If you've got a company like GHGSAT or some of the companies that are just coming in that will have satellites on orbit in the next three to four years, if you have the, those entities, and GHGSAT is doing this, working with emitters, so whether it's coal plants, whether it's landfill operators, whether it's open uh, coal mines uh, or underground coal mines, any of these um, entities that are emitting methane, so we've got higher uh, accuracy data coming from a company like GHGSAT, who's working with these entities. And in not all, but in many instances, these private sector companies are also under environmental social uh, justice kind of mandates from their shareholders. Um, And they don't want to get fined by the government. So they do, would kind of like to clean things up. So the more we can get this data embedded into the policies and practices, it builds a continuity in the long run. Right. Yeah. Okay. Back to the connected and integrated yep. point yep. Of, of earlier. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So I I'm very confident that you're going to have 
the workhorses on the public sector side, you're going to have increased, the players may change, but you're going to have increased spatial, spectral, or temporal resolution coming in on the private sector side. And the more that we can build that into uh, long stream processes, we'll secure their future. I wanted to come back to a point you mentioned earlier about like communication in science. This is something that I, I care a lot about, okay. and I'm, I'm during the day, I'm like an engineer. I, I write code, I do all of that, and I see the need for being able to explain these really technical concepts to people who don't understand them. And you said there's things that could be done better. What, how are you thinking about that, and how do you think we can be better at, at that? Even broader, like, I'm going to expand on that question, like, we understand um, Earth observation is useful, all of that. There's still a lot of people who think, you know, investing in space is useless, for example. So there, I see many different levels of communication, whereas um, from a policy level, being able to explain why a policy change would be interesting. But from a scientific one saying, like, explaining why an experiment is, is important and how it goes, how do you think about just communication as, as a whole? Yeah. Um... Yeah, and, this, and no, but and it's it's actually hard because I um, I don't look at myself as a communicator. I look at myself as a scientist uh, or a science administrator, and um, uh, and I am guilty. I am as guilty as m most of uh, scientists are. We are much more comfortable talking about how we do something and what we do rather than why we do it. So we've never been classically really trained in communication about one, getting to the bottom line right. quick, okay. and also saying why uh, this information touches every person every day around the world and, and why it's important. We just are more comfortable back in our own domains, and that's where we spend most of our time talking. So I would argue either we need more training for scientists to tell better stories about why it's important, or we need to partner with organizations or people that can, in fact, translate this information for scientists to communicate. Right. And I have to tell you, um, I think ha much of the problem that we have now today with whether uh, climate change is occurring and at what rate is occurring, um, of course, there's a loss of science literacy globally. Okay, I, I do think that's a function. But I, and there are just knuckleheads out there. There are like nutcases that, okay, don't <laughs> believe yeah, what's yeah. happening. That's not okay. most people. Yeah. But by and large, we as a scientific community must bear some responsibility for this lack of understanding because of the issue of us not being able to tell a coherent story about why uh, the Earth's climate is changing and how it's going to affect people. I mean, can you imagine on this paper that I said uh, that we worked with my former organization, GEO, the Group on Earth Observation, we also worked with an entity um, called Climate Trace. That is a consortium that's been formed under former U.S. Vice President Al Gore's leadership. Um, we just at this conference yesterday, I saw a quote uh, that he issued back in 1998. 
it's almost 30 years, I mean, 25 or 30 years ago, about how the Earth's climate is changing. Yeah. He was one of the few politicians at the time. Can you imagine how frustrated he must be that he personally raised a flag, you know, back at the turn of the century, and we're still having this discussion? Yeah. So, um, so I, I just don't want to let us, as scientists... Uh, and technicians off the hook yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. too too easily. It is. It's uh, it's so easy to point to yeah, these people right, that don't right. understand it. But you know what? We don't get there. Yeah, they didn't yeah. get there alone. You know. No, I I, th- I think you're totally right. Like people's minds don't change when they see a chart. Like that's not how people think. That's not how they change their minds. And and I think we need to embrace that a lot. That it is the story of how you were sweating to to try to get someone, (laughs) you know, to South Africa. Like, these are the things that people remember, that people connect with. And I do think we have a responsibility of, like, being better at telling those stories because that is how people, like, connect with the urgency of what is happening. It's not... That's why those satellite images of what's going on in in Ukraine where you can see individual people are so powerful because seeing that person and then saying, okay, now here's their chart of how many people that is happening, but using those stories as a vehicle to get it there, I I do think we have a responsibility for that. Absolutely. No, I do too. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about, sorry. Uh, Just one other thing. You mentioned gaming uh, before. Uh, There's another, um, talking about partnerships, Back in that same time frame, so it would have been 2000, 2002, 2003, a couple people uh, came in to the geological survey. They were from a company called Keyhole. Yeah, I see where this is going. They were (laughs) uh, uh, gamers, uh, largely, uh, and said, um, you know what, Um, it's, uh, they're kind of two stories. I should tell a Microsoft story, too. Um, but they came in, showed us, me at the geological survey at the time, some data from space, and I had never seen, never seen such a smooth transition. So they brought in Landsat data into, at that time, probably digital globes data, into some aerial, or maybe aerial photography data, then maybe into digital globe data, and then into some ground-based data, and it that transition was seamless. Usually it's a yeah, jump and a jump and, and a jump yeah. and a jump. And, um, of course, we were small and not funded at the time and so didn't support them, but they ended up uh, going to um, probably uh, Google, and so that design work also led to the creation of Google Maps and Google Earth, and it was largely technologists in a gaming industry that may not have known Earth observations per se, but knew how to move digits and pixels yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and we still, um, in fact, this um, society that I have maybe mentioned, I chair one of the working groups, the International Society for Digital Earth, the president right now, is a gentleman um, out of uh, Europe, Alessandro Anoni, and he f- feels just very strongly that we've got to strengthen a partnership with uh, the gaming industry uh, to think, see how people 
think about data and movement on the place, uh, take advantage of the technologies that are occurring over there, and then also how pe people just process information and uh, because that's a lot of the next generation and it can pertain to our future. I think a lot of people don't realize, but the gaming industry is like bigger than the cinema and music industry combined. No, yeah. It is incredibly oh, no, I, huge at this I'm point. I'm not going to remember, but the hundreds of millions of hours that are spent yes. globally uh, in playing games is immense. You yeah, just and, think and how the development as well. Yeah. It is like a insane industry, for sure. There's a lot of work happening on on like the game engine side of things with companies like Cesium doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, I'd love to talk to some of these people because it is that very interesting thing about you you do need to use it to the service of like entertainment. And usually these people are very good at telling stories. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's back to your story point. Yeah, no, we would, and in fact, we the ch a challenge I think for us in WGIC is we absolutely need to uh, reach out to some of those companies to think right. about coming into the yeah. ecosystem. This is something I find extremely interesting is when you start bridging, like creating bridges between industries that at first glance don't seem like they have a lot of common, a lot of things in common. And I think like the gaming, which is very like, It, historically, it is a lot of technologists who started making games because they could and they knew how to do it. Um, it is very technologically centered as well. There's a lot of design and, and, and art that comes into it. But there is a lot of like, how can you get the most out of very limited hardware? And, and I think there's a lot we could learn from that. Yeah, I know. The, the only other story that, that was triggered when you talk about that is that <clears throat> he's no longer uh, with us, but it was a person by the name of um, Jim Gray. He was the chief of research at uh, Microsoft. And we, the Geological Survey, had a partnership with Microsoft uh, back in the Uh, 90s and 2000s because they were putting uh, some Terra server technology together where they would deliver store large amounts of data. And so we would often meet with their research team um, because we had a large data set. It was aerial photography for the entire United States and Landsat data as well. Um, but I saw uh, there was a National Academies of Sciences meeting where Uh, both uh, Jim and I were there, and he was moving from looking at the Earth to looking to space yeah. on how uh, you could start um, uh, portraying that and distances and time. And he just said, it's ones and zeros. It's ones and zeros, <laughs> and we want to make day, it yeah. a lot of... Uh, and and I'm, not to, I'm not trying to downplay the complexities yeah. of those, But he just said, let's get back to first principles. It's ones and zeros, and let's think about how those interact. And yeah, That's a really powerful thought um, framework to, to go back to first principles. Like a lot of the things that we are talking about, they're like outside. They're very real things that we're trying to capture, trying to model, trying to abstract away. I think there's a, a, a lot of powerful things that happen when we, we go back down to that level. I want to move on. I would like to get to what you're doing today. Could you explain at a really high level what your role is? Because um, I'd like to understand it a little okay. bit better. <clears throat> 
so at a philosophical <laughs> level or a metaphysical level, it's about connections. You know, right, we started yeah. out that way, okay. <laughs> but the hat that I am wearing is executive director of the World Geospatial Industry Council. So you've heard by a lot of our conversations, most of my career was spent on the in the public sector side. U.S. Geological Survey, WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, and then the Group on Earth Observations. And actually, I should really... I should have digressed with WMO because there was a wonderful story uh, about the U.S. and Russia uh, at, right. at the peak of the Cold War, still having atmospheric scientists right. being able to talk and work back and forth together. And so I have thought about that so often now during yeah. the political yeah. debate that we're having now is we've just got to keep lines uh, of communication open at selected levels, you know, regardless of what's happening politically around the world. And um, because the, the, the broader the broader story is just the preservation of the earth as we go forward, you know, and our role on it. So anyway, whole career, 40 uh, some years on the public sector side, uh, retired a number of times from the USGS and then from WMO and then from GEO, but came back to work in 2019 to do some policy work for this organization. Um, and then also a year ago, stepped in, year and a half ago, stepped into the executive um, director's position. Having lived on the public sector side for a long time and had pretty good partnerships with the private sector, I just now and many these companies want to make sure that their data and services and products are being used more of course it's good for their business but by and large many of them do want to contribute globally mm -hmm. to the global economy and to global society and so we are an organization that facilitates that we're the only global trade association work global trade association working for this entire industry and there are regional associations with whom we're establishing partnerships because we don't want to duplicate any of that work but uh, but it's an entire earth ecosystem and we want to make sure the private sector has a voice in helping uh, address climate change and sustainable development and um the issues we talked about before, food security, they've got tools that can help those issues. Do you have examples uh, to maybe help me understand what that might look like? Yeah. Well, right now, from a process standpoint, um, the, 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 it's the governments of the world that control these international discussions. It, the, the Conference of the Parties for Climate the, those parties are governments. So it's not the private sector that can come into the, that venue. Um, so all those negotiations are done government to government. And so our message is at least let's make sure data and information and capability is getting fed in at that level so those governments can see what's being done. Because across the world, some governments are more open to private sector engagement and some are not. And yet these products can help globally. So that's, that's number one. Um, um, I think the methane example right, right, is a good right. I think that's right. a, a yeah. really tangible uh, example of how these can help. I think the Ukrainian situation, you know, with when people start to see what Maxar can deliver, 
uh, about on the ground with what's happening right now, they will think, geez, I could be looking at farms that way and agriculture that way. And yet, you know, I might not be able to afford that information, but if there are tools that are built Mm -hmm. among many of these partners, then farmers could get access to that information. Yeah, it does. And and make farming decisions. Right, right, right. You know, Mm -hmm. so... I mean, just pick a topic, and I think you will see some contribution. And that's why I say this information touches every person every day. Right. So it is being that advocate about, like, what geospatial can do in, in, in many. Yeah. And see, that's a good example of communication. You know, I talked to ask my, about oh, that. my mother, my, my, my mom's no longer here, but my brother. Now, what's geospatial? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, we probably didn't even label it. Right. right. Yeah. But, you know, but it's not just mapping, you know, and it's not just surveying. Those are all very important things. But to a large extent, I think even the terminology geospatial gets in the way because right. people yeah. don't yeah, I, understand I agree. it. It's a bit of a, yeah. maybe even redundant, like geo and spatial, like it's like twice the same thing. Yeah. Do you think we, we have that responsibility as well to make it more accessible to, so we talked about like in, in, in our industry, but like as being advocates for it, like towards the general public, that not just like the science is important, but the industry is important. Um, I think what's important are partnerships and recognizing roles and responsibilities. So clearly the industry can come in with better uh, products, in some cases data and services, but how do we kind of come collaboratively together to deliver value for citizens of the world, whether they're taxpayers or not. Yeah, how, yeah. how do we do that collaboratively? So, of course, with a WGIC hat on, our advocacy is for the industry, no doubt about it. You know, that is one of our strategic objectives, is to build more business opportunities for the industry. But it's also to identify policies that are important. So we just issued a report on digital twins, and that's maybe where we were talking again on whether you call it the metaverse or the mirrored world or digital twins. You know, our terminology can get in the way again. Um, but we've, we've just got to do a better job of portraying interactions and modeling the future behavior so you've got some hope of showing or telling a story to someone that, if you continue doing this, this is what it's going to look like in 20 years or 30 years. And you hope that those stories will uh, change behavior in Having the here like and now. a common yep. narrative on that rather than yep. like 10 voices that are not really aligned. Yeah, that's exactly right. So our objectives are really simple. simple. Make sure these technologies uh, get into global society and the economy uh, in a more systematic way. They are helping, but we could do that much more in a much more coordinated fashion. We want to identify policies that are relevant and go back to make recommendations to either governments or the industry on how to do it better, um, and then also uh, build the business, grow the right, business. Right, right, I wanted to touch on, like you said, it was a, a nonprofit. Like, can you just maybe quickly go over, like, how is the whole structure funded? Yeah. Is it through the, the partners? Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, only membership dues. And those membership dues are based on annual 
general revenue from those from those partners. So we've got a number of different companies. We've got companies that come in at a so, an associate level if their revenues are under a million or maybe two, $10 million a year, then it's 10 million to 50, and then it's um, uh, you know, 50 and above. So, so clearly those companies that are making more than $100 million, billions a year, um, are coming in at our highest level, and those are our patron members. So we've got a sliding scale on membership dues. Okay. It goes anywhere from $1,000 a year to $30,000 a year, and it's our only source of revenue. Okay, got it. Yeah, I just wanted to understand that. I think one thing I'm realizing is it's really important to understand like where the money comes from. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. yep. So it comes from those members and then the fact that we aren't profit, um, uh, we just plow that all back into, right. you know, whether it's committees that we've got in place or publications, those policy reports that I talk about. And so, and then we establish strategic partnerships with other entities. So whether it's organizations like the World Federation of Engineering Organizations or Building Smart or the Open Geospatial Consortium, you know, organizations that have technical expertise in some other entity, some other domain, so that we don't have to build that up. We just work with them strategically, but there's no exchange of funds between uh, those partners and us. It's only our members, and uh, the, the only source of revenue is from our members. Yeah, I, I have to confess, sometimes it is a little bit hard to keep up with, like, a lot of these consortiums and, and like, organization about, like, trying to understand how do they all fit together. Yeah. Because, quite candidly, they seem like they have a lot of similar names yeah. as well. Yeah. It, it is I find it yeah. very tricky to yeah. keep. No, up. I think I think you're right about that. And the truth of the matter is, is sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and sometimes the names also may not be particularly indicative yeah. of of what their core functionality is or capability is. To so then, if people are only looking at the names, it yeah, sounds right, duplicative. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think it took me a while to understand that Geo was actually an organization. Yes. Because it's like, wait, yeah. Geo is the field. No. Yeah. Like. Exactly. No, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. 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 I think. But, sorry. And, and and we go, you know, and we want to come up with acronyms for everything. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Right. So <laughs> we would never take the time to say, no, this is the intergovernmental group on yeah, Earth yeah, observations. Yeah. yeah. I, I do think that's one place where like private companies have figured out, like. Well, Planet's maybe not the best example, but a lot of other companies where it's a bit catchier, like it, you don't know what you get because it's not labeled on it. But I, I have had this feeling where it's like, oh, a lot of the nonprofit and governmental is this like huge acronyms that you could interchange and nobody would really notice. And then super catchy names where you don't really know what they do from the name, but you it sticks with you. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you, you said, um, I was quite just quite curious. You said like you retired multiple times, but in 2019, you came back. Why did you come back? Um, let's see. So, uh, and maybe a better qu question was why did I go? <laughs> why did okay, I yeah, go? Yeah, fair there? enough. Okay. Why did you go in the yeah. first place? Um, because, well, it, yeah. So I went, went for work. Um, retired from the geological survey in 2008. Um, there was a, a, I don't know if you know how the UN uh, works, but the World Meteorological Organization is a specialized technical organization of the UN system. And so, of course, during the whole COVID, you heard a lot about 
the World Health Organization. And so what the World Health Organization is, is the health departments of all those members, governments, to the United Nations. WMO is the same thing. It's the national weather bureaus or the national weather services. So in Australia, it would be the Bureau of Meteorology. They're the member, they're the face of Australia to WMO. So anyway, from the United States, um, I went over to be the director of the space program within the World Meteorological Organization. And so I had retired from the USGS, took a job in Geneva for four years with WMO, and it just so happened while I was there that the Intergovernmental Group on Earth Observations executive director position was opening up. And so after four years with WMO, I applied for that job, got that geo job. Uh, it was, um, you had uh, two, you could have uh, two, you could have a three-year term, you could do a second three-year term, you know, and um, I mean, there were term limits in each of those positions. Uh, and so then in 2018, retired from that structure and moved back to my home country, which is the United States. Okay. So what did so, bring you in back? Because that's uh, been like a year, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I retired and, and I was doing a lot of volunteer work uh, with a number of organizations. Um, there's a committee um, called ICORS, the International Committee. Uh, talk about acronyms, <laughs> you know, International Committee on Remote Sensing in the Environment, where a conference is held every other year, and it focuses on applications in the developing world. And, uh, and you know, and then I sat, sat on another couple boards and then I did start to do some policy work, staff the policy committee for this organization. And then a year and a half ago, the founder of um, uh, and first director of WGIC was Sanjay Kumar, who is the organizer of the event that we're here for this week, Geospatial World Forum. He had been the director for three years, took a leave of absence from his company, to stand up this organization, and after three years was going to return to his business, core business, which is conference organizing and management and doing some research in the field. Um, so they were looking for an executive director, and I still had a fair amount of energy left. I <laughs> uh, wanted to make a contribution, so I came in as executive director. Right. So... A number of people tease me about not being very good at retirement. So <laughs> retired but that is also two or three like times a fixed amount, right? It is like a and this particular job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were thinking probably. Uh, well, first of all, it was for one year, uh, and then they came back and say, said, "Would you stay a couple more years?" And I said, uh, "I can stay another year for sure." And let's talk about anything after that. Right. Yeah. And then you're going to retire and take something else yeah. after another year. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> Who knows? My friends say, when are, actually my family too, when are you going to re really retire? Um, but I guess in terms of a mentoring perspective right. for young people, um, if you love what you do, it doesn't take a lot of energy. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of energy, but you know what? It's, it, it's an energy source right, right. more than an energy yeah. sink. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know who I... I don't know, actually, I, every time I say this, I have to find out who actually came up with the quote. But it was something like, 
if you find something that you love to do, you'll feel like you've never had to work a day, yeah. you know, in your life. And there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, right. I do want to start rounding it off. And just like I asked the first question when I start, I like ending with the same question. Are there any books that you've read um, or podcasts that you listen to that you think are worth uh, sharing? And it doesn't have to be about anything that we talked about. Like, I just like asking because books and and podcasts um, get recommended a lot through word of mouth. And I think they're also quite indicative of just people in general. I think they're a nice facet of people's personality as well. And so I just... Is there anything that comes to mind that you think would be worth sharing people um, reading or, or listening to? Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this because I, I honestly, I read a lot, um, but I mostly read fiction. Okay. Um, yeah, mostly read fiction uh, rather than nonfiction because um, I also have to read a lot of nonfiction yeah, for yeah, work, yeah, yeah. you know, and so a lot of times I'm looking for escape. Um, I look, and I like science. I love science fiction. So Ender's Game, okay. I absolutely loved it. And then uh, Snow Crash. Have you? I'm not familiar know. with that one. Oh, so let's let's look up the author real quickly because all of a sudden I'll, I don't I'll put have it my on phone. the show notes. Okay, do the, it. Uh, um, because particularly in that book, I had a colleague at the Geological Survey say, "If you like science fiction, Barb, read this read this book." So I read it. Maybe I might have read it 15 or 20 years ago neil stephenson stephenson s-t-e-p-h-a-s-o-n i think and he's written a number of books and they're quite thick books so you gotta take some time but snow crash is actually the juxtaposition of us living in the real world and a virtual world. Okay. And so as soon as we started saying the role of digital twins oh, and right, the metaverse, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that book is, um, it's a, it was prophetic. It's a prophecy because as an individual, uh, okay, there's fine. There's a little knob in the back of your neck, <laughs> but you are living in two worlds. Yes, yeah, right. You are living in the real world and you are living in a virtual world. And, as I look forward, you know, when you said, are we ever going to get to that point? Okay. That's why I think we're going to get to that right. point okay. because this book is just fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I, now that you mention it, I do think, I wonder if that's not the first book where the word metaverse was, was oh, like, Oh, interesting. I read it so long ago. I wouldn't uh, remember, but I, I think I, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. I'll, I'll put that no, in. The highly, list. highly recommend yeah. it. I, I did want to ask, like, do you have, I, I don't usually ask that, but I feel like asking, do you have advice for for people um, getting started in the industry? I'm kind of asking quite selfishly for myself, yeah. but just yeah. in general, um, for yeah, people getting started in the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, don't be shy. Reach out. There are a lot of people uh, my age, younger and older, who really do want to help. Uh, you know, they feel just so um, committed to what's happening and, and absolutely know that we got to, uh, at some point, turn this over <laughs> to the next generation of leaders. And so don't be shy. Um, I A piece of advice I got uh, a couple, many years ago, when I, I was in Rhode Island at the time, and it was um, never underestimate another person's insecurity. <laughs> never underestimate 
another person's insecurity. So you can see many people that you think are totally successful, and I would never go up and talk to them. They are human. They are insecure about how good they are or whatever. Now, of course, there are people that their egos wouldn't fit in this room, but by and large, that's largely because they're insecure, right? So don't do whatever you have to do to uh, don't underestimate somebody else's insecurity and feel free to go up and talk and talk to them. Find something that you absolutely love to do because life is too short to spend any time doing something that you don't love. And that's not to say that you don't have to um, work hard and that there won't be failures. We, I have learned way more from my failures than I have ever learned from any success. And so you ought not to, they're really, you really, um, and it's it's so hard, but um, there's, try not to have a fear of failure because, you know, while it may not feel good right now, you'll look back and say, geez, good thing I failed then because, you know, it'll kind of set the stage for the future, okay? Um, and then, of course, diversity. I mean, whether it's geographic diversity, whether it's gender diversity, whether it's racial diversity, we just have to do a better job of connecting because um, that's the composition of the people that live on this earth, and we've all got to have a voice in the way we go forward. Okay, so for me, that's the connections that need to be made, personal level, interpersonal level, all the way up through institutions and sectors. I think that's a wonderful place to end. All up. right. Max, thank you very much for your time. I wish you all the best. Yeah. Call anytime. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much yep. for, for taking the time to set the context to tell those okay. stories. It was, it was great. All right. Sounds good. Mm-hmm.